Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. If this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life East. I'll invite you to find your way to your seats here. Uh, we are continuing our series in the book of Ruth this morning. Some of you are still standing because you think we're going to do the creed, but we'll do it next week. So just, it's okay, but you can say the creed whenever you want. Do you realize that? You don't have to wait until you get here. Uh, we're continuing our series in the book of Ruth this morning. I have a special guest in town. My dear friend, Dr. Chris Green, is here bringing the word to us. Uh, I've known Chris for about 12 years when I left Tulsa uh, back in 2009 uh, to move to Denver to help plant a church. Chris came in behind me as the teaching pastor at that church, and uh, we forged a connection then. And I've maintained that over the years. Chris is one of the most fascinating guys I've ever been around. Uh, every conversation I feel like I have with him, I go, well, I've never thought of that before. And one of the occupational hazards of being in ministry is that you have fewer and fewer moments like that, I think, as you get older. But Chris dials up those moments with some degree of regularity. Uh, he is uh, he's a professor of public theology at Southeastern University in Florida, teaching pastor at Sanctuary Church. Uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I think actually the most important thing that I can say about Chris is that Chris is astonished by Jesus Christ. And every time you hear him speak, he leaves something of that astonishment with you. And so would you please give a warm New Life East welcome to Dr. Chris Green. Good morning. Oh, I, I, it's good to be here. Yeah, it, I've just met you, most of you, and it's, it's rude to do what I'm about to do, which is just jump right to it. I'm, I'm supposed to take time to let you see a little bit of who I am so you're a little bit more comfortable, but I'm going to bet that you trust Andrew enough. I will, say, I will say this, I almost didn't get the job, so when Andrew left, I was kind of brought in behind him as a on trial, and I almost didn't get the job because I did my first Sunday, what I'm about to do right now, and Roger Brune afterwards was like, you're going to have to be a little more open with people. You can't just go right to the text. So I don't know how this is happening, but it's happening again, Andrew. It is, this is the third time this weekend that I will have preached from Ruth, and this is a testament to the wonder of the Spirit and the wonder of the text the Spirit has given us that each time I'm, I find myself in an entirely different place spiritually. Um, I, I, know I spoke, I think it's Jim, right? Was there Friday night? Uh, I talked about being intoxicated by the text. This morning I had this very clear sense that God is, is after what is dead in us, where I ended the service. And, and between the services, just this sense of Weightiness has hit me. And this call to attend to the still, small voice of God. So I'm going to start with a story, and then we're going to go to the text. And then we'll see what happens from there. But you just need to be warned. Like, the, the Spirit is really stirring me, and I don't know. Who knows where this will go? Andrew's an incredible preacher. He can handle it if I get overwhelmed. So... Uh -huh. Years ago, I have a friend, I still have a friend, not just years ago, but years ago, this friend who is, as far as I know, still my friend, took a photograph of a branch. It's just a branch in the winter, there's snow kind of along the branch, and there's one leaf that's just kind of clinging to the branch about to, about to fall away. 
And I often, God often speaks to me in images. Right? In fact, I was talking with Jim about when I was eight years old or so, I, I think maybe my first real experience with God came in seeing a painting and being moved by it, not even knowing what was happening to me. And so there's, oh, here it is. This is not a great res of it. Sorry, the, if the photographer is watching, I know that doesn't represent your work well. But it's, it was just that image. And I looked at that, and I heard the Lord say, you cannot see the work I'm doing in it, no matter how closely you look. You can only see it after it's happened. And so I, I'm kind of taken back by that. Out of that came a poem, and I want to share it with you and talk a little bit about the mood that I think the Lord is calling us to. Stare long, even longer, at the quick length of this branch. In the quiet, see its quiet, and do not blink or even once look away. Still, it will not matter. You will not see it. Slowly drink the light, or light so suddenly this leaf. Thankfully, the sun is not a perfect circle, and all of us were wrong about why we could not see the stars. The last thing God needs is to be noticed. This is why I'm astonished by God. He has no ego. He meets every need for everyone with no ulterior motive. God creates from no need. God redeems from no need. God perfects for no need. God does not need to be the center of, the, of the, our attention. We gather every Sunday to worship God, not because we are meeting some need in God, but because worship is where we find ourselves. He needs us to look at him only in the sense that he knows we will never be who we're called to be until we turn our attention away from everything else to the truth that he is. But to see him, the one who does not need to be noticed, is to learn to look like him in two senses. Not only do you start to take on his character, I think maybe the sweetest thing anyone has ever said to me, and not to me, but to my wife and me, there was a, a young woman who had been horrifically abused. She grew up in church. Her father and her uncle had abused her terribly, 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 all of her life. She ended up in Bible school because she, her life was coming apart. She didn't know where else to go. She ended up at our church. She started talking to my wife and me. We're in regular therapy and counseling, pastoral counseling with her. And I'll never forget, one day she turned and she looked at us. And she said, I hope God is like you. I hope God is like you. I'm not going to preach about it this morning. Andrew touched on it last week. But in Ruth 1, when, Ruth, when Naomi is talking to Ruth and Orpah, do you notice what she says? May God be to you what you have been to me. May God imitate you. Because that's the character of God. That when you turn your attention to him, he just makes you like he is. And you begin to spread the glory and goodness and sweetness of God around you. The, the aroma of God begins to spread through you to the people who are around you. So what, what I see in the book of Ruth is the still, small work of God. The work of God in that branch that's drinking the light, but you can't see the branch growing. That's feeding the leaves, but you can't see the leaves eating. God's work is hidden, 
because he doesn't need to be noticed. But you need to see like he sees. At the very end of the sermon today, at least if things go anything like we've planned them, we're going to sing, Be Thou My Vision. Not in the sense that, Jesus, I'm looking only at you, but in the sense that, Jesus, I want to see the way you see. Be my vision. Let me see my neighbor the way you see my neighbor. Let me see that homeless man on the street or that lawyer in the restaurant or this nurse at the hospital or the, the just the other day, just the other day, I'm driving my son to football practice. My son's 13. We're driving to practice and there's a car wreck on the side of the road. And out of nowhere, we're, we're talking about football. We passed that car wreck. I'm just driving by it. I didn't even notice it. And I heard my son pray out loud, God be with those people. God be present to them. If anyone's hurt, heal them. That's what it means to see the world the way Jesus sees the world. I'm busy. I'm the dad, the soccer dad, I guess, driving to practice. And my son, the Spirit of God, is just right below the surface. And all it took was him to notice a need, and out of him came prayer. That's what it means to see as God sees. And so the book of Ruth is that. I'm not going to unpack this much. Andrew's done some already. The book of Ruth was written at a time in Israel's history of intense, intense conflict. It's after the exile and in the period of what's called the Second Temple. So if you remember the story, Solomon has built a temple which is glorious, but Israel, through unfaithfulness, has come under judgment. And that temple has been destroyed, ravaged. And Israel is taken, scattered into Assyria and Babylon, and the nations have absorbed them. The, the temple is, is plundered, the walls are broken down, Jerusalem is a wasteland. And slowly, through the leadership of Nehemiah and others, Israel returns home, but the home they return to is not the home they remember. And they're haunted by former glory. You remember in the book of Malachi, he promises that the latter glory be greater than the former glory. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. All of that is coming from Israel's experience of having come home and being shattered by the fact that home is not what I remember. Home is not what I remember. And one of the key moral issues at stake is the issue of intermarriage. So Israel, of course, as an insular people, has always had this sense. I mean, there were nuances and complexities, but always had this sense that to be the people of God meant that you stay away from Gentiles. You stay true to being a Jew by marrying a Jew and having Jewish kids. You don't cross the boundaries into Gentile lands, and you don't marry Gentile people. And especially not Moabites. I'll come to that again in a moment. And what's happened is Israel has been flung to the world, finally returning from Assyria and Babylon to this home that's not quite home yet, haunted by former glory, and they're coming back with wives and kids who aren't Jews. And the people of God, the men of God, the women of God are trying to discern, what does God want from us? And some of the voices are saying, we should never have done that. We should divorce them and put them away. Send those Gentile women and those kids back home. And other voices are saying, no, 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 no. God hates divorce. What we need to do is be faithful. And it is an incredibly intense, combative, difficult time. Haunted by former glory, unsure of the future. And this little book written by we don't know whom speaks a prophetic word right into the midst of that. But it does it in the way that that leaf and that branch drink the light. You would never know it if you didn't know it. If somebody doesn't clue you in to what's happening in the book of Ruth, you would think, oh, this is sweet. 
you would think it's a kind of hallmark, pure flicks, Hobby Lobby romance, right? Something that's, you know, heartwarming, but in a, in a little bit of a creepy way. Sorry if I said, I said too much. It's just a little too nice, you know? It's, it's, it's that, it's saccharine, not sweet, right? It's got that little taste of falseness to it, if you're not careful. But if you pay attention to what's actually happening in the book, you will realize that this is the quiet work of God. This is the soft answer that turns away wrath. This is the mustard seed that Jesus says, start small, but when it grows up, all of the birds of the air can nest in it. This is the little bit of leaven that leavens the whole loaf. So if you attend to what's happening in this story, it will set you free because it is the word of God. In fact, one way of thinking about this is the book of Ruth is a narrative form of Beatitudes. Remember what Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit? He builds up to blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. The Beatitudes in story form, that's the book of Ruth. And it's a story compressed down to the story of two women. Let me just interrupt myself to say, the enemy, our enemy, is the accuser. And he loves to talk in generalizations, and he loves to talk in abstractions. But our God is the God who notices the real. And part of the prophetic power of the book of Ruth, as we see in Jesus, who embodies the wisdom of the book of Ruth, is that it's always talking about specific people in specific moments, doing specific things in relation to a living God. There's no general wisdom about what should you do about intermarriage. There's no like position paper. There's no book of philosophy on how you handle intermarriage. There's just a story about a woman and her daughter-in-law. One's a Jew, Naomi, one's a Moabite. One is old, Naomi, and one is young. One is coming home again to a home that's not quite home. And one is leaving home never to return again. And in those two stories, the story of those two women, the writer of Ruth has compressed all of our lives and all of Israel's history to teach us the things that make for peace. You remember when Jesus comes to Jerusalem at the end of his life, I mean the last hours of his life, at the outskirts of Jerusalem, he weeps over the city. And this is, this is what I'm feeling in my guts right now. He weeps over Jerusalem. And what does he say? Oh, if you had only known the things that make for peace. And this is what I feel right now. For all of us, not just those of us in this room and listening, all of us, whoever us is, we do not know the things that make for peace. And we're clamoring, driven by abstractions, driven by generalizations, driven by fear of what might be, haunted by a past that we want to get back to. Whatever it is, we're not attending to the branch. We're not attending to that still, small voice. We're not attending to the leaven that's slowly, secretly working. This book is set in the time of the judges. It's written in that post-exilic period. But it's set in the worst time in Israel's history. The time of the judges, as you know, there's a refrain in the book of Judges. It shows up over and over and over again, including the very last line of Judges, which is, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and what's the rest of it? And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And as, if you know anything about the book of Judges, it's horrifying. I mean, every turn, it's chaos and destruction. And even the redeemers who are lifted up, most of them end up being more damaging than the people they delivered Israel from. The story of Gideon is a perfect example. Gideon delivers Israel, but by the end, he's the oppressor. 
And one of the West messages of the book of, of Ruth, I mean of the book of Judges, is that be careful the kind of deliverance you ask for. If you ask for a deliverance of violence against your enemies, that violence will roost in you. And of course, this opens out. The last word of the book of Ruth is David. It's a story about how we got from the time of the judges to David. And we got there with nothing happening. This is the wonder. The book of Ruth is the only book in the Bible and maybe the only book in literature, world literature, in which there's drama but no conflict. There's not a bad person in the book of Ruth. There are better people. Ruth is more faithful than Orpah, but Orpah's not bad. Boaz is more faithful than the other redeemer, but the other redeemer is not bad. There's not a bad word spoken of anyone. No one is condemned. No one is accused. The closest we come to that is what Naomi says of herself. And there's no power of God. There's no prophetic word. There's no miracle. There's no charismatic manifestation. I mean, these people hardly pray. God is mentioned, but this is not revival either. So there's not the fire of judgment or the fire of revival. It is a quiet, still moment. And what the book of Ruth is doing with unbelievable touch, with tact. I heard someone say once, Stanley Cavell say, tact is what the, what the jeweler has when he's shaping the diamond. There's force, but such precision that nothing is broken. That's what the book of Ruth has. It's tactful. It is a prophetic word. It is surgical. It is touching the very nerve of what it means to be the people of God. But you don't feel the violence. Because this is our God. He is not violent. He can be forceful. He can be disturbing. He can upset your life. But he never violates you. The blessing of the Lord maketh rich and addeth no sorrow to it. This is essential that you understand. God is for you. And even when his judgment is coming, even when the wrath of God is against you, it's nothing but his love calling you back from your confusion. When the fire of God's judgment is against you, it's nothing but the intensity of his love breaking through every resistance to claim you. And so, this is a prophetic text precisely because it understands that God's work does not have to violate in order to change us. All right, all of that's prelude, Ruth 2. Are you okay? Everybody okay? Thank you, for, thank you for being the kind of space that allows this. You don't know me. Again, I know you trust Andrew, but this is, and I don't mean this in a grandiose sense. The Lord is speaking to us, and I, I want us to be able to attend to that, and that you're yielded to that and open to that. I, I celebrate that, and it's a testament to you, Andrew. Ruth 2, I'm only going to talk about the first 20 verses of Ruth 2, and I'm going to jump through some of them for the sake of time. But I want you to notice, verse 2, we're told right away that Ruth, the Moabitess, asked Naomi, will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone who allows me to? I mentioned in the first service, just, and I'll mention it again here briefly, one of the things that's astounding about Ruth is that she knows when to yield. In Ruth chapter 1, we read that Naomi is trying to persuade her and Orpah to go back. And Ruth says, no. She puts her foot down. I'm not going back. Do not entreat me to leave you. I'm going to go with you. Where you go, I go. Your God will be my God. Your people, my people. Where you live, I will live. And where you die, I will die. 
She is unrelentingly devoted to Naomi. She knows when to be defiant. but She also knows when to say, will you let me go? And will you let me go to a place where they let me glean? This is maturity. This is the Holy Spirit. To know when to be strong and when to be weak. When to be defiant and when to be yielded. And the key is, what does the person next to you need? Not what do you feel comfortable with, but what does that person need? Naomi needed Ruth's defiance. Naomi felt it was her obligation to release Ruth to go. And Ruth needed to defy that so she could be with Naomi. But in this chapter, Ruth is in a foreign land. She doesn't know here from there and up from down. She needs guidance, and so she knows to be humble. That's, that's the Spirit of God. And so she ends up in the field of Boaz. She's gleaning. And then in verse 4, Boaz shows up. He comes from the city. And when he comes, he says, he arrives from Bethlehem, he says to the harvesters, the Lord be with you. And they reply, the Lord bless you. See, this is the time of the judges. And if you only listen to the judges, you would think this kind of life is impossible. Everybody's killing everybody else. It's a time of bloodshed and intrigue and betrayal and corruption. And the writer of Ruth says, hold on just a minute. You remember what happens with the prophet Elijah when he's in the cave? And God says, what are you doing here? And he says, oh, I'm fleeing because I'm the only righteous one left. And God's like, hold on a minute. <laughs> like, you don't understand the way I work. There are thousands of prophets you don't know anything about. And the book of Ruth is about, again, the hidden work of God. And in a time, and I don't know where you are, I don't know how you feel about the moment we're living in, but if it feels sometimes like everything is going to hell in a handbasket, as if everybody has turned away from God and you're the only righteous one, let me bring you some good news, bad news. You're not the only righteous one. God has thousands of people he's been gathering, and there are people who are engaging each other with blessings and not curses. There are communities where life is spoken and not death. There are people who care for each other and not in some sinister, manipulative way. It is possible to live the the will of God. It is possible to know the things that make for peace. And this community, not just Boaz, not just Naomi, this community is living it from the chief to the least, from the first to the last. Boaz comes and they greet each other with liturgies of blessing. The Lord be with you and also with you, which they've learned from the Aaronic blessing in Numbers. The Lord make his face shine upon you. This is the kind of community you can be. We can be. It doesn't matter what's happening around us. This is possible. And so out of that exchange, he comes to Ruth. And she, he notices her, offers her not only to gather the fallen grain, but to actually glean. And she falls on her face and she says, how have I, a foreigner, found favor in your sight? Which is a a callback to the story in Genesis of Hagar, the Egyptian, who's thrown out by Abraham only into the arms of God. Abraham kicks her out of the house, But she doesn't go away from God. She runs right smack dab into the arms of God. And she's the first person in Scripture to name God. And you know what she names God? The God who sees me and sees to my need. So what's happening in this moment is now another Gentile woman is falling in the presence of God and saying, you see me. You see me. Boaz is playing the role of God. He's learned not just to look at God, but to look like God looks. He has God as his vision. 
and he sees Ruth rightly. How did he see Ruth rightly? Like, what was it that brought him to that moment? Some of it is what I just called liturgies of blessing. He lived in a community where they spoke life to each other. They spoke the word of, they were priestly to each other. They brought the grace of God with themselves to each other. Some of it is what I want to call good gossip. In a community that's dominated by the spirit of our enemy, bad gossip undercuts and undermines the way we see other people. It sows seeds of doubt in our minds about what other people really are like. But when you have good gossip, when the spirit is leavening and salting your speech, then you speak about people who are not present in ways that make them shine with the glory of God so that when we see them, we see them coming as the face of God. And so much about the health of a community is what you say about each other when you're out of the room. It's what you say behind one another's backs that's going to make this a community, a congregation full of the life of God, like we see in Bethlehem. So he comes with good gossip. He comes with liturgies of blessing. But most important thing is Boaz knows his own story, and he knows the God of his story. At the very end of the book, we run into the the elders of the village and the women of the village. The whole community comes out to bless the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. And you know what they say? They say, may this woman be to you. May this woman, Ruth the Moabitess. Right? Everybody in the book acknowledges she's a Moabite. She shouldn't be here. The law, Deuteronomy 23 says, because they did not give you food and water when you were in the wilderness, because they hired Balaam to curse you, you must not allow a a Moabitess into the land or a Moabite into the land or into the house of the Lord. And if there's intermarriage, the child is unclean for 10 generations. And here's a Moabite, and here's a marriage with a Moabite, and the whole village, not one person, not the prophet, the whole village says, may she be to you like Rachel and Leah, and may your child be the fruit of the Lord. Think about that. A whole community speaking blessing and not curse, life and not death, welcoming Ruth in. And she's embraced. Naomi is celebrated. But here's, here's what I wanted you to see. What's, what's happening in this moment is the recognition, the prophetic word of Ruth is that our future as the people of God depends on the welcoming of the people who are estranged. Our future as the people of God depends on receiving blessings from the people we thought were cursed. Our future as the people of God looks like reconciliation with those we've always regarded as enemies. Our openness to the Moabite is what makes us Israel. You want to know the mark of the people of God? They're open to everyone who is not. The elect are elect for the sake of the non-elect. The only reason God has you and me in this room is that he is madly in love with people who are not in this room. And we have been joined in the conspiracy of kindness to draw them close to the house. This, This God, this God that I'm astonished by, that you're astonished by, is the God who even when one of his sons comes home and is having a party, he's not gonna rest. He goes back out for the elder son. And we've gotta be those kinds of people. One of the things that haunts me about the prodigal son story is that the prodigal stays in the party. He hasn't yet caught his dad's vision because what should have happened in that moment and what may happen in the story after it ends, as, as far as we can read it, is that the prodigal realizes, I don't want to sing this song if my brother's not here. I don't want to eat the fatted calf if my brother's not eating it with me. 
I don't want to wear this ring if I can't share it with my brother. The father knows that. We have to know that. We've got to welcome them. I'm almost done. This is what they know. So in the end, when the village gathers around Ruth and Boaz and blesses them, they say, may you be blessed like the house of Perez and Tamar. This is so astounding because what this means is they remember a time in the Israel's beginning in the book of Genesis where there was a Gentile woman who creatively found her way into the blessing of Israel and that became the future of Judah. Judah would not have had a future if God had not worked with a Gentile woman, a Canaanite woman, to find her way into the people of God. And what those people in Bethlehem know and what Boaz knows is, listen, our family came from these people. How could we not accept Ruth? She's nothing but our past brought again to us by the Spirit. And if you know your scripture well, and you know the God of your scripture well, you know he is always the God who's including the outsider. That's who he has always been. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. This, this is all building up to, and I really am almost done, this is all building up to the Gospel of Matthew. Whoever wrote Matthew, Matthew the Apostle, knows the story of Ruth inside and out. And as I've already told you, I think the Beatitudes are a kind of teaching that unpacks the story of Ruth. In the Gospel of Matthew, the first thing we get is a genealogy where Jesus is identified as the son of David, and all of these women, including Ruth, Tamar, Rahab, are specifically named as the women God brought into the people of God in order to make Jesus possible. That's how we start. It's just a reminder that we would not be here if it weren't for the people who don't seem like us. You would not be here if it weren't for people God used that you would never have thought God would use. And here we are. So then where is Jesus born? In Bethlehem. What is the first thing he has to do? He has to flee to a foreign land for protection and is met in Egypt with the hospitality he does not receive at home. He's living Ruth's story, just in the opposite direction. And throughout the Gospel of Matthew, it's the outsider who knows him. The wise men come from the east to say who he is. The centurion at the cross says, truly, this is the Son of God. The centurion says, Jesus says of him, I've never seen faith like on all of Israel, seen faith like this in all of Israel. But the most astonishing story of all is the story of a Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. Before Peter's confession in 16, before the transfiguration in 17, there is a Canaanite woman who says to Jesus, she hunts him down and she says, son of David, have mercy on me. Now you got to hear me here and I, I really, I really am going to quit. Even though my spirit is nowhere near done with this, God's not done with me. How did this Canaanite woman know, not just Jesus was a healer, but that he's a son of David. She knows the story. Somehow the story of the God who's always working with the people who seem to be cursed has made its ear to another Canaanite. Now she's coming to the God whom everyone else thought said to destroy the Canaanites. But she knows better. She knows the heart of God. And she comes and hunts Jesus down. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So this is what I want to leave you with. Remember what I said to you a moment ago about the prodigal son. 
When you read the story of Ruth and you come to that happy ending and you see the blessing that's come on Naomi and you see the blessing that's come on Ruth, you should rejoice, but you should also ask, what about Orpah? What about the woman who went back? She's not here. It's a glorious day. Malon died, but his, le- his lineage lives on because of Boaz. Ruth is home. And we have to always rejoice with those who are rejoicing while we weep with those who weep. But this is what I hear the Lord saying. He's just as interested in Orpah as he is in Ruth. And who knows if, what, what if, what if the reason this Canaanite woman in Jesus' day knows the story of Ruth is because Orpah took that story with her when she went back home. In the first service, I really felt the word was, there are places in you that are Orpah, places in you that are Kilion, places that are dead and estranged, and God is coming for those. And I, I believe that. Listen to the first service. I stand by that. But I want to say something else here. And that is there are people in your life, people you're close with, people you know, that to you seem like they're going in the wrong direction. They're not the clingers that Ruth was. They kissed and left. And you're feeling a kind of pity for them or perhaps disappointment, maybe even anger, but you need to know you cannot know what God is doing in that branch. And who knows, who knows, who knows if the reason this Canaanite woman all these years later has a story burning in her spirit is because that woman, Orpah, went back to her mom's house and said, I didn't want to be here. I'd rather be there. But you've got to know about this God. You've got to know about Naomi. Can you stand with me? Worship team, will you come? There are two questions, and I'm just going to seed this into your spirit and leave you. Everybody still okay? Andrew, are we all right? There are two questions. In the, in the first chapter of Ruth, there are two questions. One by Naomi and one about Naomi that I think are the questions hanging over all of us. The first one is when Naomi's trying to persuade Orpah and Ruth to go back to their mom's houses, which that's such a pregnant term, by the way. In the biblical world, you go back to your father's house. There's something that Naomi knows about these girls. They're they're to go back to destruction. And probably what it means is their fathers are dead too. Not only their husbands, but their fathers have been killed. Probably because of the violence of the judges. Regardless, she says to them, why would you come with me? Are there still sons in my womb? And of course it's a rhetorical question. Heck no, there are no sons in your womb. But we know this God. This is the God who specializes in barren women bringing life. That's what he does. But notice she says sons, not a son, sons. And then at the end of chapter one, when she comes back into the village, the village is overjoyed to see her. And they ask this question, can this be Naomi? And she says, no, 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 call me Mara. And there's a way of hearing that question, can this be Naomi, as kind of sneering. Like, oh my God, is this, like, is this you? You don't look the same. You've gained a little weight. You've lost a little hair. Is that you? But that's not what's happening. 
It's a question about her future. Can she be Naomi again? Right now she's bitter. Right now life has taken it out of her. Can she be Naomi again? Can these bones live? You, Lord, you alone know. And you know what happens in the very last chapter? After we've celebrated Boaz and after we've celebrated Ruth, they gather around Naomi and the women of the village say, Naomi has received her son again. You want to know the answer to those two questions? Are there sons in your womb? Absolutely. Can you be Naomi again? Absolutely. And not just a son, not just a son for the faithfulness in you, not just a son for Ruth. There's a son for Orpah too. This is the word of the Lord to you. This is the word of the Lord to you. There are sons in your womb and you can be Naomi again.
Friends, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is good and it is right to give you thanks and praise, our God. I was thinking while Chris was preaching that when we talk about providence in the church, a big theological word, what we're not talking about is a theory of history, nor are we talking about fate. It was just bound to happen this way and nothing we do or don't do could change it. That's not what we're talking about. What we mean when we say the word providence is that there is no detail of our lives that has escaped God's notice. Everything matters and it matters for good. <laughs> God, you need to hear that. That God doesn't let any detail fall outside of his kindness. But what he does is he sweeps all of it up into his goodness such that at the end of all things, we'll look back on our story and we'll go, we don't see how it could have been any other way. But of course it could have been a billion other ways. And every one of them would have been the glorious story of our God. You guys, God is carrying the details the estranged husband, the estranged wife, the estranged kids, God is carrying them. The friendships that have broken down, God's carrying that. Your dreams that have miscarried, the things in you that feel broken, God, he's carrying that. And all of us at the end of our stories will look back and we'll be Naomi. That God made right all that was made wrong. We know, we know, says Paul, that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And so now we stand before you, Lord Jesus, remembering that you are not the God who remains remote from us, but you are the God who has entered into the breakdown, the tearing apart of our history in your own body. And you've made it yours in order to draw it up into resurrection life and make it whole again. And so the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, after he had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it. Can we break the bread together? And he said, take this all of you and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me, the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we take it together? And in the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, Drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And he says, very truly, I say to you, I will not eat this bread or drink this cup again until I come again in my kingdom. And so as we take this cup on our lips, what we're looking forward to is the day when all things that have been made new in the cross of Christ, the cross and resurrection, that they are manifest as the new things that God has made them to be, brothers and sisters, in anticipation of the new creation that is now and is not yet, let's take the cup of salvation to our lips. And would you begin to just lift adoration in your heart to the Lord and thanksgiving in your own way, all of the things that you're holding before the Lord, knowing that God has promised to redeem all of those things. Begin to lift up your worship and your thanksgiving and your adoration. Oh, our God, we love you. 
Whom have we in heaven but you? And earth has nothing we desire besides you. Our flesh and our heart may fail us, but you are the strength of our hearts, O God, and our portion forever. And so we sing in doxology. Let's sing it together. In a world that's filled with cursing, friends, lift your hands and receive this blessing, this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Can we show our appreciation for Chris Green this morning? Thank you. I'll invite our altar ministry team to come forward. If you need prayer for anything, we'd love to pray for you. Remember to see us at Connect Central on the way out. Enjoy your Sunday afternoon, friends. You are loved. We'll see you next Sunday.